0: Okay, so we were discussing We were discussing the idea that the tzaddik is called a tzaddik because of the kind of love they have for Hashem, right? And that love, love always comes along with what other emotion? If you have love, you also implicitly have hate. And so what is it that divests the animal soul? Remember, the animal soul, its essence is the pursuit of pleasure but it has a form, it has garments, it has the modes of how it experiences pleasure. And what causes the animal soul to divest itself of the different garments, the different forms in which it experiences pleasure, is not the love of the godly soul per se, but the implicit hatred. So the the godly soul loves Hashem, therefore there's an implicit hatred, and that hatred makes these things that the godly soul hates so unenjoyable now that the animal soul no longer derives pleasure from them, And then the animal soul could, in theory, be transformed. That's kind of where we left off. Yes? Yes. Okay. Um, Now, what I want to do is I want to start talking about the... Go back to the text and look at the hatred and use the hatred to try and understand the love. Okay? So we're going to be on page 41. Actually, let's just go back... Let's go back to 39 and and read from the beginning of the sentence, if you don't mind. Okay, so that is to say, last sentence on page 39. He utterly despises the pleasures of this world, finding no enjoyment in human pleasures, of merely gratifies in physical appetites, instead of seeking the service of God. Okay, so that's just the fact, that the tzaddik derives no pleasure from any human pleasures, why? Inasmuch as they are derived and originate in the klip and sitra achar. So klip and sitra are um, Hebrew and Aramaic words that refer to things that are not holy. I will come back to what that means in, in a few minutes. Okay, but for right now the, the, the feature that we don't know about Kleep and sitra is that they are not holy. So in the world of Kabbalah, and therefore also this is true in the world of Hasidus, everything takes a value. It's like numbers, it's either positive or negative. For those of you who studied math and know there's, there's imaginary numbers, ignore that. There's positive or negative numbers, right? Everything in the reality is either holy or? No, no we're, not, we're, gonna, we're gonna use a different word, we're gonna use unholy. Why am I gonna use the word unholy? Is not there a neutral. middle ground? There's no neutral. It's either positive or it's negative. So those things that are holy are called sitra Dikadusha, the side of holiness. And those things which are unholy are called sitra, sitra which means the, the other side, because we don't want to give it a name. Or it's also known as klipa. Is there a difference between klipa
1: and sitra
0: they are two different words. They refer to different concepts that both re- relate to the same reality. I'll come back to that. all of that soon. Okay. So now, what is it about the human pleasures that the tzaddik hates? What does it say in the text? Yeah, the, the fact that it originates from this side of unholiness for whatever is of the sitra Achor is hated by the perfectly righteous man with an absolute hatred by reason of his great love of God and of his holiness with profuse affection delight and superfluous devotion. Okay so what is it that a person hates? The person hates the fact that they, these things, they hate the fact that they originate from the side of unholiness. Now, here it describes the perfect tzaddik. Later on in the text, he goes on to describe the imperfect tzaddik. Okay? Um, and we're going we're gonna, to... we'll look just very briefly. If you look at the next paragraph that says the incomplete is righteous, meaning the incomplete tzaddik, see the next paragraph in the text, is he who does not hate the sitrach with an absolute hatred. So what are we seeing the differences between the complete and the incomplete tzaddik is that one causes them to hate the side of unholiness absolutely, and one causes them to hate the side of unholiness Well, one is absolute and one is not absolutely. Okay. Good? Okay. So what I want to do is I want to first focus on understanding what does it mean to hate things because they originate with the side of unholiness and what that tells about the love. Um, and once we do that, then we're going to continue going, going back and we're going to look at the difference between the completely righteous and the incompletely righteous. What's the difference in hating absolutely, not hating absolutely? Okay. We're we'll gonna start with the following. Can someone tell me something? Now, for our purposes also, we're using the word hate as a stand-in for all negative feelings towards something. So whether you prefer the word dislike, disgust, repulsed by, I don't care. For our purposes, we're gonna group them all together and call it hate. And all positive associations, we're gonna to group together and call love. love. So even though we can differentiate them, we're, we're not gonna worry about that right
1: now. So for hate, we're just saying
0: it's like negative Any negative association, right? So, right, I could find something like, the fact that if you were to ask me to um, go clothes shopping, right, and I say no, the reason I'm saying no is because I hate it, right. For our purpose, that's what we going to say. Now, if I was speaking regular English, I probably would not say hate. That's pretty has some sort of intensity. I'd probably say something more. I dislike it. I don't enjoy it. Right. I find it dull and boring. Whatever the case might be, but for our purposes, any kind of negative. Feeling towards something is going to be grouped under the general category of Hebrew Sina, or, for our purposes, in English, "hate." And then positive feelings towards something are going to be grouped under the, the sense of "ava" love. Okay. Okay. Now, can someone who doesn't mind me interrogating them ever so slightly volunteer something, not someone, not someone, something that they hate? It could be mild hatred, could be intense hatred. I don't care. But I give hate me stuff. something. You hate stepping on snails.
1: <laughs> I'm
0: I would agree with that. I actually hate looking at snails. Okay, why? Because
1: they are everywhere and then I step on them and I have I clean them up and that's fine. No, funny. Well, because
0: I feel bad. What's that? Well, let's, let's interrogate this. First off, you don't hate them because they're everywhere.
1: I think anxiety
0: gives me to see them everywhere. Okay, but, but, but what's so bad about seeing them? And what's so bad about stepping on them?
1: They crunch. <laughs> and then they're dead, I <laughs> killed them.
0: So what bothers you is that you killed them? What if they didn't crunch when you killed them?
1: <laughs> if they were still dead, I'd still feel bad.
0: Which is which is it really? Is it the crunch or the fact <laughs> that they're dead if and you, if you kill them? Slums
1: too, I feel bad as well. They don't crunch.
0: Okay. <laughs> what I'm about sorry. ants? I
1: hate ants. Same yeah. reason? <laughs> no, I hate ants because they crawl. But if
0: you stepped on an ant, would you feel bad that you yes. killed it? Yes. Okay. So that's already something that's very interesting, right? So you feel bad about killing...
1: Things, people? No, people? No.
0: That's recording no, now. No. no. People, 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 I think is... A, is, is that's self-understood, right? I, I'll just be honest. I don't feel bad about killing ants. Really? Really, I don't. Um, I don't feel bad about killing them at all. I, I feel really bad about killing slugs and, 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 um, and, and snails. And that's just because I think just the, the, the sound and texture of coming into contact with them is just okay. so disgusting. <laughs> it makes me nauseous. Right. Okay? But the fact that they're dead like, just doesn't bother me. And if I'm responsible for their death, I, I mean, maybe I shouldn't admit this. It also doesn't bother me. Okay? So there's already two different things here. Right? It was good. We we're differentiating. Right? There's something about it that you hate that I don't hate, which is the... the the, the ending of life and that sense of, I don't know, maybe you want, maybe it's a moral thing, but it's an emotional thing. And then there's just me, it's just the more, I only have the visceral, like, just that is, in terms of its aesthetic, it's just repulsive. Mm-hmm. And you seem to have both. Mm-hmm. Okay, good, right? So simply knowing that you hate something is not enough, there's why you hate it. Is that important? okay Anyone here ever been cut off in traffic? Do you hate that? Why? It's rude. What? It's rude. Okay. It's kind of scary. It's scary. It's the most dangerous places. That goes back to scary, right? Isn't that what that scary, right? It's it's dangerous. Okay. Rude and dangerous. One other thing. Unexpected. I mean, yeah, but. Is it true that you hate all unexpected things? No. Right? So I want I want whatever you're gonna say about you hate would have to be ever you find that it gives you some that kind of negative reaction. Unexpectedness in and of itself is something that we, we don't have a fixed reaction to as people, right?
1: It's struggling, it slows you down?
0: It slows you down, right? It's inconvenient. So let's go with it. It's 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 well you, you not in any particular order. It's inconvenient, it's dangerous, and it's rude. Mm-hmm. Those are three different things. Let's let's examine them. If there is a boulder that rolls onto the highway, doesn't hurt anybody, now traffic has to stop until they clear it out for 20 minutes, I am inconvenienced, right? And so if that is the only thing that bothers me of being cut off on the road, right, then I would feel the same negativity towards being cut off as to a boulder like blocking the road or, or, or a snowstorm or anything other thing right then there's the danger right there's the fact that there's a threat to life that's, that's a totally different thing when something could not be inconvenient just be right, I might die and then there's the rude thing the rude thing is very interesting because what does what does it mean that it's rude independent of whether I'm right or wrong in other words, whether I'm accurate in calling it rude or inaccurate, it's, it, it certainly means something that it's rude. Right? Maybe it wasn't rude, right? <laughs> one time, at, there's, the, there's the, the, the convention of shluchem. We just had the kinest of shluchem in New York. So one year there was a... There was a they have these different like, um, workshops for, for shluchem also. for shluches they have. Different things like learning, fundraising, all sorts of different things. Um, so one of them was thinking about time management. And so the beginning, this person who was giving this talk on time management to a group of, I don't know, 40, 50 shulchan, said that it's really important that everyone please turn off their phones because part of time management is like, when you're doing this, do this. If you're in a class, <coughs> focus on the class, right? And otherwise, you know, it's not rude. Yeah. And sure enough, like 20 minutes into class, one of the shulchan's phones rings. And um, so the person decides to be kind of cheeky and says, well, you know, um, is, is your wife pregnant? And he's, is, your, is your wife giving birth? And he says, well, actually, yes, and gets up to leave.
1: <laughs> so,
0: so you're right. Sometimes perceptions are wrong, right? <laughs> um, when my wife was close to giving birth, I used to have my phone on. I would tell the students my phone is on because, you know, my wife could go into labor and, like, that's why it's on. And if someone else calls, I'll turn it off, but that's why it's on. So you're right. It, it, you could be wrong. It's not rude, right? Maybe the person is rushing to the hospital. It's not being rude, right? But regardless of whether you're right or wrong in that judgment, let's assume you're right for the moment. What do you mean that it's rude? Doesn't mean that's dangerous. Doesn't mean that it's inconvenient. You think, you're,
1: you think You should
0: go first. It seems to violate your sense of self-importance, right? Like it goes against your sense of entitlement. Your sense of personal dignity and importance, something like that, right? Now let's think about them. If only thing about being cut off in traffic was the inconvenience, how negatively would you feel towards it? That was the only thing, it was just inconvenient. pretty Pretty negative. More or less negative than if it was dangerous, than if something dangerous happened. Contrast, in other words, you got cut off in traffic, but it was not dangerous, it's just inconvenient. Not rude, just, you're delayed 20 minutes. Have you ever been delayed in traffic? Not anyone's fault. It's just the way it is. It's annoying, right? Okay. On the other hand, if you almost, if you feel like you're, you're, you, you almost uh, got into an accident, I think the feelings are a lot more intense, right? Does that make sense? Yeah. Now, here's an interesting question. Of the two, the fact that you feel it's rude or the fact that you feel it's dangerous, which of those are going to elicit more intense negative feelings? I would venture to say, and this is an open debate, and I don't mean to say that, that I'm necessarily right on this. I would venture to say, all things being equal, to the rude, and my evidence for this, you could take it or leave it, is the way in which you're able to calm down afterwards. If you get cut off, or let's just, let's just, just cut off, right? if something dangerous happens, right? But there's no sense that there was a person was violating my my sense of self-importance. It's just like, is he's a uh, like. Let's say you almost skid off the road, and it wasn't anyone's fault. It's just because it was slippery. It was icy. I'm from Minnesota. Okay, it's like dangerous, right? I, my sense is, in my you know unprofessional observation of myself and other people, is that people tend to come down from that much easier than the sense that somebody did something against them. That could be wrong about that, and it could also be that that varies from person to person as well, right? Now, we could have that argument, and the reason why i'm I'm leaving it un, undecided is not because um I don't think it's an interesting question, but because i, wanna, I want i want want to bring out the fact that what you dislike or disdain or hate or repulse by in something changes the way in which you feel what changes that in the kind of negative feeling it makes it more intense, less intense right. And therefore, it's not a lot of information when you say, the thing I dislike is X. What you really need to know is, what about it do you hate? What, what about it goes against you? Right? And why? Like, why does that bother you so much? Right? Just an interesting observation. Many people are much easier, have an easier time accepting a financial loss where there's no one to blame, even if it's a bigger loss than a smaller financial loss where there seems like there's someone to blame. Mm -hmm. Someone steals $10, you're like, that ruins your week, Mm -hmm. right? You misplaced the $100 and you know it's no one's fault. It's annoying, but you seem to get up. So there is a way in which, now I don't necessarily know that everybody's like that, but it seems to be like that for most people. So the, we have to interrogate, what is it that you dislike about something? What is it that you hate about something? It's not enough just to say what it is. Okay, so now let's talk about the tzaddik. What does the tzaddik hate about what's what's a human pleasure, regular human pleasure that's not from the side of, something that's not from the side of holiness, regular human pleasure?
1: Swimming.
0: Swimming. What does the tzaddik hate about swimming?
1: It's not godliness.
0: It's not godliness. That's what he hates about it. That it's not godliness. Now, does that make sense? Is that a reason to hate it? Okay, but What I want to do is I want to challenge us to try And have some kind of cognitive empathy In other words To put ourselves in that state Where we can understand how that That makes sense Even if I don't experience it that way And so what I'm going to do Is I'm going to step aside for a second If you're not a tzaddik Do you hate things that are ungodly? No Really? Hate things
1: that
0: are ungodly Sure you could hate things that are ungodly you could even hate them because they're ungodly. But, but the reason why you would hate them is not because they're ungodly per se, but because of the effect that they have on you. Let me explain to you what I mean. Let's say I'm not a tzaddik. And swimming ends up distracting me from serving God. I know, I'm really into swimming my desire for swimming my dream for swimming causes me to be tempted into violating Shabbos and so I end up stumbling when it comes to Shabbos um, I end up doing instead of studying Torah I think about it while well, I'm supposed to be praying davening right and so now why would, and, but I really want to get closer to God so I might develop some negative feelings towards swimming right but why do I have something wrong with swimming per se no it's just
1: distracting
0: right it was, swimming if it didn't get in my way I would be fine with Right. So what right and this by the way is the way in which a, a non Sadhakh was gonna Baini Baini also loves God. But their love for God is I love being close to God, and so the thing I hate are things that take me away from God. But if the thing which is ungodly doesn't take me away from God, I'm very tolerant. I have no issue with it not being godly, I have an issue of it taking me away from God. Okay. Um So now, let's go back to the, the car for a second. If the thing that bothers you, the thing that, that, that you don't like about being cut off in traffic is the inconvenience, well, that means you really have, in principle, no problem with being cut off in traffic. You just have a problem with wanting to get to your destination sooner. So if
1: you didn't have to get there on time and you are just meandering down the street and someone cut you off, you'd be like...
0: And, you know, there are people that, if it, if it wasn't dangerous and you're not really, you know, so have This whole ego thing about the rudeness of it, and you really don't need to be anywhere. It's like, okay, fine. Like, people are people. Okay. There are people like that, right? They're rare, right? I hate them, but yeah. <laughs> right? Why do you hate them? Why do you hate them?
1: Because <laughs> it's annoying to have someone be like, oh, well, you know, live and love live. And like, they actually know.
0: <laughs> Why? Why is that so hateful?
1: Um, it's annoying because I think there's a lack of empathy.
0: Mm, that could be, and
1: sometimes a little bit of
0: superiority. That could be, but let's 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 let's, let's take that out. It doesn't have okay. to be like that. They could be that way for themselves and perfectly right. empathize with you. you. You want you want to hear a good story? There was a chassid. His name was um, his name was Rabbi Yitzchak Horowitz, but he no one knows him as Rabbi Yitzchak Horowitz. He's known in in, in Chabad as Itcha the Masnim. Masnim means the diligent one, because he would study Torah all day um, before he started. With being a chassid, he, was, he asked him, why well, don't you study chassidic teachings? He said, well, if you add another hour in the day, then maybe I'll study chassidists because he, he literally would study every waking moment and he, at night he would put his feet in cold water so he wouldn't fall asleep and he study. Like, he, he was an extremist. He, he was a real, real extremist. Um, and then when he started studying then they said, well, why do not you ever study Talmud? They said, well, give me another hour in the day. Mm-hmm. And so he was called Masma, the diligent one, because um, he was extremely diligent. He was also extremely religious. He did not, just to give you a sense, he did not eat in other people's kitchens. When he traveled, he brought his own pot, okay? He would inspect the knife that the chicken was slaughtered with before the chicken was slaughtered and after the chicken was slaughtered before he would eat from the chicken. He was extremely, extremely religious. Okay, so that gives you a sense of the kind of person he was. One more, last thing. Um, there's a, there's a discussion in the Halacha whether you're allowed to eat bread baked by a non-Jewish baker if it's commercially baked bread. The rule is that in principle, yes, and ideally, no. Different people, have different customs when it comes to this. Um, in Soviet Russia, there was a famine. There were no Jewish bakers, so everyone ate commercially produced bread, which was kosher, but relying on this leniency. He would not, um, even to the point of risking his life. Don't ask me now about the Halachic legitimacy of risking your life for astringency. It's debated. There's room to do so. Anyway. Wait. Yeah. He,
1: he said if you have another day and that another hour my day, I'll learn Yeah.
0: Like, he did that. And then he started learning chasidus for oh. some reason. And then he got so hooked on it that he stopped learning Talmud. He was an extremist.
1: Well, what did
0: he learn before accident? Talmud. He used to learn Talmud. Like, like, literally 19, 20 hours in the day. Minus, I guess, prayer. But he slept, like, four something hours a day. Um, anyway, he, he was killed by the Nazis, he was burned alive in a shoals. Yeah. So, now, I, I, I'm telling you this person, like... This goes back to your thing about empathy, right? So now you can imagine that this kind of person, he's not exactly very into how his food tastes. You understand? <laughs> like, you can't be like that in any genuine way. So at one point, he had someone staying in his house who was uh, an orphan. Like a young boy, like six or seven... No, probably seven, eight years old, sounds more accurate, but whatever. And so, when this orphan came to stay in his house, um, the, oh, so he, he used to be, so, what he did is he first found out what does this orphan like to eat? And this orphan liked chalva. Chalva is like, a, you guys know what chalva is? It's like the sesame and stuff, okay. So, it should the masmid every day, before he went off to study and pray, which he did the whole day, his first thing after saying morning blessings was to make sure the he left the house, there was a good-sized piece of chalva for this orphan kid when he woke up. So what do we learn from this? That you can be, you can be very much in one thing for yourself and very much empathetic and sensitive to someone else's experience, mm-hmm. right? The, the, one of the, it's not here, but another thing that says is that that the greatness of human empathy is not that I experience things like you. It's that despite the fact I don't experience it like you, I can partake and empathize with your experience and legitimize it. So, the fact, that, like, the fact that for me it's not a big deal doesn't mean that now when I relate to you it's not a big deal. And that's like the power of a, of a human empathy as opposed to an animalistic empathy. Um, so, it doesn't have to be the way, although, granted, very often if something's like, it's, I'm fine, it doesn't bother me, it's like, it's not to bother anyone else either. And that's, that's not very worse. But anyway. Um, so you could, you could dislike the fact that it's inconvenient, but if the convenience part doesn't bother you, it's not a big deal. What is, when someone cuts you off in traffic, yeah? Let's think about this for a second. What are they doing? Like, there's rules of the road, right? Yes? Okay. So if they're cutting you off, what have they done? Well, I mean, in driving, is there such a thing as right of way? Yes. Like if, I don't know, like whatever the rules are, right? If you're, if you're on the main road and the person's in the driveway, right? Then they have to wait until there's a gap before they enter in, right? They don't get to like stop traffic to get into, right? There's rules of the road, right? And so let's assume for a moment that you're a reasonable, sensible person, right? So then, okay, if I have the right of way, then I have the right of way. If I don't have the right of way, then of course they should be able to go, right? I mean, that's kind of the way it works, So then if they're actually cutting you off, what are they doing? If they're not just in your perception, but let's say your perception is accurate, they really did cut you off, then they violated the rules of the road, right? They should have let you go. So now let's take away the possibility that was a real emergency, they're running to the hospital, whatever, right? They're just, so then, then is it not true that they prioritized their own convenience over you and disregarded the, the basic respect implied by the rules of the road? So has your dignity been been? Disregarded, yeah.
1: Don't really about it. it's about
0: That's even worse. That that makes it even worse.
1: So don't take it personally, That's
0: it, but, uh, but, but but let's think about that for a second. Why do I take it personally? Because I'm a person, and they're treating me like like I'm a person. I have the right of way. And they're treating me as if I'm non-existent. That's an, extreme, that's an extreme violation of my dignity. So why shouldn't I be upset? Why shouldn't I be, be, feel very, very negative towards that person? Like really, like why not? They're treating me as if I'm a non-entity there's rules of the road, there's basic decency and courtesy that people treat each other in the public space and they're treating me as if I'm not even there purely for their own convenience. Then add on that, that it throws a risk to my life. Why shouldn't they be upset? Okay, so you're saying maybe I'm wrong, but, but if I wasn't wrong, I know I wasn't wrong because they cut me off and they pull into the gas station, they get themselves a soda, and they sit down and they like, lean over the car and like they weren't running anywhere. Important, really. Like, no, like, you, you Why shouldn't I be? Like, no,
1: you assume that they just weren't thinking. Like,
0: that, makes not, that makes it worse. That makes it worse. I'm such a non entity, they don't even need to decide to disregard me, they don't even consider me to begin with. Why shouldn't I be upset? Because you're like, you
1: have and you don't want to freak out something like
0: this? Okay, so so now we're getting excited. You're saying something like this. You know what? It just doesn't do me any good to, like, get freaked out about this kind of stuff, right? Like, does it make my life any better? No. no. That's all, right? I can just say, like, I, I should not take this stuff too seriously because... I'm going to end up with some anxiety issues, maybe a heart attack at the age of 50, right? So that's probably not in my interest. Okay, but then what you're saying is, is that I might be justified, it's just not worth it. Yes. Okay, that's one argument you can make. You know, another argument you can make is that like, and I think some of you are touching on this, but this is, this is, this is a little bit trickier. I'm not that important. And maybe I shouldn't be so wrapped up into my own personal ego to begin with. In other words, maybe I'm not the center of the universe and what happens to my dignity is just not the end-all and be-all of everything. And let's think about this for a second, right? If someone else gets cut off, I have no problem. saying, like, look, you just got cut off. It's like, it's not a big deal. Like, move on. Like, 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 like. like, we have no problem relating to other people as just one other person, right? Well, why can't I relate to myself as just one other person? Why can't I see myself as not the center of the universe. And if I didn't see myself as the center of the universe, would it really bother me that I got cut off? So there's two things here. One you could say is, I shouldn't get so upset about it because it's not good for me. It might be justified or it's not worth it. The other thing you could say is not justified because it's kind of built on a lie. It's built on the sense that I'm somehow really, really important and I should expend emotional energy on my personal dignity when like, I'm not really more fundamentally important than anybody else and so then maybe I shouldn't hog all of my emotional and intellectual attention about myself. But the way I like to put this sometimes is um, you don't have to be the main character in the story in your head. Just because there's a story playing out in your head doesn't mean you have to be the main character, does it? Mm-hmm. Okay, so like for instance, sometimes I, I, I counsel Bachem in the, sphere, right? so in the, in the men's programs, So Bachem comes and speaks to me, right? So in my head, what is the story, the, the automatic story in my head? is that I, right? the hero of the story, is now going to do a heroic act and counsel this poor troubled soul. That's the automatic story that goes on head. Now, um, I could change that story. What would be a probably a better story? So who would the main character be?
1: Yeah,
0: yeah. there's this person who has this life and is a certain juncture and has found this supportive rabbi at this particular junction life. So maybe they're the main character and I'm the supporting character, right? Now, which of those two stories is going to make my advice probably more, more effective and legitimate and honest than which of those two stories? The second one, right? And then that takes effort to switch that story, right? And it's also actually more accurate because given the context of what's happening, really who's here for who? He's here to give me the, the, something to do in my life or I'm there to help him? So in that context, really, he is the main character of the story. Right? And it's only my obsession with myself that doesn't, that makes it hard to see that. Right? So, which also, by the means, now here's the follow-up. Right? Let's say I give him some advice he doesn't follow it. How offended should I be? Well, it kind of depends which story was in my head, right? <laughs> right? So now, if you're driving down the road, and in your mind, you're just one of the eight billion people on earth trying to live their life and you're no more important than anybody else. You're not less but you're not more, right? How likely do you to get really incensed that someone cut you off because of the indignity of it? Probably not, right? Less likely because you know what? You realize like it's a human failing and everybody does it and like you're not like and you even do other like it's just like it's not a good thing. You're not saying it was a good thing that they did but it's, it's like it doesn't carry all of that gravity or you could say, no, no, I'm really the center of the universe in my mind. And it really is a big deal. But if I really let it bother me, then what happens?
1: It's worse for, it's
0: worse for me. And those are two very different ways of relating to this issue, right? Okay. So you see what I'm trying to do? I'm trying to pull apart that in something, as how you relate to it can, can, on the, can be very, very different. So now let's go back. If I really want to be close to God, what do I hate about ungodly things? The only thing I hate about them is they pull me away. So if they're not pulling me away, I don't have any problem with them. No, that's not even the... That's not a tzaddik at all. In other words, I don't have any negative feelings towards their being ungodly. I have negative feelings towards their effect on me. Because what I love is not God. What I love is my relationship with God. If I love my relationship with God, I don't hate ungodliness. I hate things that threaten my relationship. Here's a scary question. Do I love my wife or do I love my relationship with my wife? Do I love my children or do I love my relationship with my children? Do I love my students or do I love my relationship with my students, right? And that has a very big consequences because... What if something doesn't really impact my relationship? Then, as far as I'm concerned, I no longer have an emotional that has no valence to me, even though it might be very critical in the life of my loved one. Like this is something that you can think about. Uh, a ch- child goes off to school, right? And so they go to school so from eight o'clock to, say, my, my my boys. The average time they come home is three. Is the end school is three forty-five. So they're in school from eight thirty to three forty-five. Okay. Older one is a little bit lo- is longer. The younger one's a little bit shorter, but that's like the average time. Okay, that's a long time. That's five and a half days a week, because on Friday they have a ha- they have a, they they have school till eleven thirty. Okay. How much time do I see them? Well, if they're up before I leave, so maybe for five or ten minutes, and I come home at seven. So. Let's say they're in bed by 8, so that's an hour. But I'm not home every night because I teach sometimes at night, night, so that's not every night of the week, right? And then Shabbos, there's also a show, right? So now let's add up. Where, how many hours of the day, week do I see them? How many hours a week are they in school? And let's just say it probably rough they're about in school twice as long as they're with me. So that means in their world, how big is the experience of what's going on in school? It's very big. Not only you say it's more important, but it's a big chunk of their experience, right? But in my experience of them, how big is it? Well, it basically is, okay, is, does what happened in school affect the time that we're together? Such as, do they have homework? Are they upset about something? Are they proud about something, right? Do you see there's this disconnect between if what's important to me is them then what's important is the entire, like there's, oh, there's a big chunk of their life which is in school, right? But if what's important to me is my relationship with them, then school gets filtered through how does school affect them in the context of being around me. And then school becomes a very minor thing unless there's a big problem in school there's a big project in school. Okay, what about marriage? How much time do I see my wife? How much time does she see me relative to all the other stuff we do? you starting to see a pattern here. Like you, someone can be very important to you. But what's really important to you is your relationship with them. And therefore that ends up being a filter that the parts of, your, of their life, the good and the bad that you really have any emotional connection to are how they then filter back into your relationship with them. And so you end up relating to them in a very narrow way. What if what matters is not your relationship with the person, but the person? Then which part of their lives are important to you? All of it. Okay. Here's an interesting thing. Have you ever had a relationship with a person and you wish that they wouldn't bring something up in their life? Have you ever had that? I'm not saying you said it, just the thought crossed through your head what does that say? What's more, what do, you really, what do you really love? Them or your relationship with them? Right, because them bringing up that part of life makes the relationship more complicated. So if they would leave it out, the relationship would go smoother. But if I really love them, <laughs> well that's part of them, right? It's part of what they're going through. Okay, so now, the non sadik not a Russia, because we said Russians don't love God at all really, right? But the non-saddik, the Bainini, we'll learn later on in Tanya. What is the Bainini love?
1: Relationship.
0: Relationship with Hashem. And so therefore, the only thing he, he hates is something which
1: disrupts.
0: disrupts that. But the tzaddik doesn't love his relationship with Hashem. What does the tzaddik love?
1: Hashem.
0: Okay, well if you love Hashem, how do you feel about things which are, which are antagonistic to Hashem? Whether or not they have an effect on you. What? Hate them. So let's go back to swimming. What's so bad about swimming? And let's be more careful. It's not about swimming. It's enjoying swimming. In enjoying swimming, what does that feel like? It feels like swimming is valuable in its own right, doesn't it? It feels like swimming is a good thing in its own right. Isn't that a denial? I'm pleasant to hear this. Isn't that a denial of the fact that the only thing that's real is Hashem? The only thing that's true is God. Now, that doesn't really bother me. You know why it doesn't bother me? Because I'm not a <laughs> If I love Hashem, and Hashem is the only truth, then anything out there that, that purports to be truthful or meaningful, beautiful or significant, in its own right, is a denial of Hashem. And therefore I find, I would find that Negative and repulsive. Now again, we're not talking about the actual act of swimming, right? Is the act of swimming the issue here? No. no. So if you enjoy
1: the act of learning Torah because it's intellectually
0: stimulating, is that hateful? Is like that... To a tzaddik? Absolutely. Absolutely. Some tzaddikim who are not known for their maturity because you don't need maturity to be a tzaddik. Um, you just need a very strong godly soul, right? If you're going to work on becoming a tzaddik, you need need certain maturity, but your godly organization is very intense, and so you can be a tzaddik with very little effort. There are such people. Um, they have been known to, shall we say, not treat Torah scholars so nicely because they can't stand them, because they find them despicable and evil people.
1: What?
0: Because these are people that are, not only are they, are they into something which isn't god, but they're taking something which is a, really about God and twisting it into about their own, you know, aesthetic or ego gratification. You know? It's like a it's like a violation of that which is most sacred. So that's people don't write regular things like some people only there's a bit, that that would be a similar idea, yeah. There's a similar idea.
1: Like
0: why I mean, that idea exists for the similar reason. That's a holy language to be used only for holy things, and yeah. Um, but could, could somebody
1: who's not excited learn not for
0: conceptual yeah. situation? Sure, you could learn because you want to be connected to God, and that's the only way to genuinely connect to God. But
1: that's like.
0: I don't like going shopping. I don't, that's, with one exception. I like going shopping for books. Other than books, it's the only thing I like shopping for. However, I do like going shopping with my wife with the exception of clothing. That's already too much. I can't stand clothes shopping with anybody. But like any other shopping, like fine, like go, my wife, like, going grocery shopping together, going to the hardware store together, I like doing that, why? Right, I like doing something that's going to, an activity where we're gonna interact and spend time together, I enjoy, you know, and I can see past the shopping part of it, and that unless it's clothes shopping, that's already too much for me. Um, yeah, you could do something. Yeah? I mean, I always tease the Bahram in, in the men's program. Like, like, I mean, I know I'm weird because I enjoy studying ancient Aramaic legal texts, but what's wrong with you? Like, why are you spending, depending on which track you're in, you know, three or six hours a day studying ancient Aramaic legal texts? Like, that's a weird hobby to have, isn't it? And it takes them to just stop. Like you're right. That is a weird thing to be doing. Like, why are you doing it? But that's kind of just like an excuse. Like I actually
1: really like very interesting intellectual stimulation. But I'm just gonna like
0: kind of like put a sticker on it and say, oh, it's. No, no, no! no. I'll be very honest with you. No, no, no! That's that's, that's that, that that that's. So first off, um, the people that that learn for the intellectual stimulation they tend to have an easier time learning the people that don't actually tend to have a harder time learning and you can see that some person needs to work and make a change and the altar later on discusses this chapter 15 that even the person who, whose natural tendency is to learn or to do something if you really want to connect to God you have to go past your natural predisposition but there's a very big difference if my goal is I, what, I, what I love is connecting to him or I love him Those are not the same what makes the tzaddik a tzaddik is they don't love connecting to Hashem. What do they love? Or who do they love? They love Hashem. And so, therefore, anything which denies Hashem in the subtlest of subtlest ways is something that they cannot stand. But I can block that out because I don't love Hashem. At best, I love connecting to it. And so, as long as this thing is not threatening my connection, I'm fine with it.
1: Are you supposed to love Hashem unless you have a specific type of high soul like like, How are you supposed to love
0: Hashem? Who says you're supposed to? We're just describing, right? So loving Hashem
1: is probably the only inside of
0: the thing that we
1: have. He say he's so how else
0: are we supposed well, to love Hashem? Well, you, you keep saying something and I keep avoiding answering the question. Is that you are supposed to and I said we're not talking about supposed to we're describing. Um, what is the first chapter in Tanya where the altar actually says what you should be doing? Does anyone know? We're in chapter 10. Chapter 14. Until chapter 14, the altar but never makes a normative statement. This is what you ought to do. This is what you not, should not do. So what you focus on, this should be his primaries. He doesn't do that. Okay. And I will tell you, what he says is you should prioritize being a Bainini, loving. In other words, loving being connected to Hashem, and you should also work on loving Hashem. But it's not entirely in your control whether you'll succeed or not, and then it gets a little more complicated and technical. But here we're just describing what it is. if you really love Hashem, right? If I love my children, then anything which is and anything that goes against my children, I don't like. If I if I don't love my children, I have a relation with my children. There are things that go against my children, and I'm fine with it as long as I keep it out. Yeah? Let's say your kid comes home from school and they're having a problem with another kid in, in class. And now they're upset and now they're miserable and they're unpleasant. This kid is unpleasant to be around because of yeah, you. If I'm gonna make it a little bit extreme. What if you love your child? What really bothers you is the fact that your child is being bullied, right? And so you want to deal with that, right? What if what you don't what if what you love is your relationship with your child? Then you would like your child to like Be a man and learn to deal with it and, you know, when you come home, be in a good mood. Because it just makes it unpleasant to sit at dinner when you're all whiny because you got bullied in school. Enjoying things that are ungodly is tantamount to saying there's something other than God that's worthwhile. Now, if I love Hashem... That how can I how can I tolerate that? That's denial of the absoluteness of his being. But if all I love is being with him, being connected to him, as long as that particular thing isn't threatening my relationship, it's like fine, live and let live. It doesn't affect me. So if it's forbidden, I'm against it. If it's distracting me from my growth in Hashem, I have an issue with it. If it's a stumbling block for me, I have a problem with it. But like otherwise, what's the big deal? And that kind of person is a love, but that love is not the. The, the, the love of a tzaddik. The love of a tzaddik is they don't is they love him, they love who he is. And so therefore they can't stand anything that goes against him. And and, every, and again because everything is either godly or ungodly, holy or unholy. So enjoying something unholy, valuing something unholy, is tantamount to denying him. Yes. No. How are tzaddikim able to love Hashem? They have a godly soul. Yeah, you said that before. I did say that, and now I said that. Was that when? Was that? And then I also said just now that tzaddik has a. That's okay. Which part of you is human? Animal soul, the rational soul, which part of the person is able to give them this kind of love? The godly soul. Right? So in chapter three, the altar spends a very a big time discussing the godly soul's ability to know Hashem and how that generates love. But without that, without a godly soul, right, that, that, right, in other words, the, the godly soul being godly has a capacity to know Hashem in a genuine way. And then that becomes the basis of love. And it's that kind of love that a tzaddik has. And this is why it's also called tzaddik. What does the word tzaddik mean? It means righteous. Righteous means correct. What's the correct kind of love for a godly soul to have? Not for a person, for a godly soul. Being the fact that it's godly. To love God as God. So if I love my relationship with God, is that the correct kind of love as a godly soul? No, it's, it's very, as a, as a human being, that's a profound, lofty thing, right? But as a godly soul, that's kind of like selling yourself short. Right, it's like if I love my my children. If I, if I love my relationship with my children, if I don't love my children. We'd all think there's something off about that, right? I mean, it's something people struggle with, but right? Because as their father, I should love them, right? I should love my wife, not my relationship with my wife, right? I should love the right. So as a godly soul, I should love God. As Him. And it's that kind, right? So, so again, this whole process comes up because the godly soul has been sufficiently strengthened and it's from that place the love stems. Without the godly soul, you're 100% right. There's no way a human being, a created entity, could love God. The maximum a human being could love is their relationship with their creator, which again, is not something to sneeze at. That's a, that's a you know, if only we were that good, that would already be pretty amazing. Do you like eating dirt?
1: <laughs> sand. Do you like eating
0: sand? No. no. How about rolling around? How about rolling around um, in horse manure? Not appealing. Um, sticking needles in your tongue. Like, there's a lot of stuff that's just like just is rem- not remotely appealing, right? Right. It's, it's, it's devoid of anything remotely like that resonates with you, right? Well, if, 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 if you love Hashem, what's the only thing that's... If, you're, if, if the godly soul really loves Hashem, what's the only thing that resonates with it is Hashem. And Hashem has this interesting characteristic that He's the only true thing. He's the only real thing. So what all of a sudden starts to feel like needles and in your tongue and rolling around in manure and all sorts of other stuff. It feels repulsive and disgusting, everything that purports to be valuable, appealing, meaningful, independent of Hashem. And so therefore the tzaddik, his love, brings to him a hatred of those things. And the text says again, in as much as they're derived from the the klip and zedrachah, because of their unholiness, not because of how their unholiness affects them, Can I go back to the slugs? <laughs> did you know that a slug just died? What? Um, Does it bother you? Yes. <laughs> really? Mm-hmm. So why did I have to bring it up?
1: Why did you have
0: to bring it up? You didn't know that a slug just died? No. You couldn't like think about it. There's How many slugs are there in the world? How What is the rate at which they die? Oh, no. About every minute or so, a slug probably dies or something like that.
1: Something probably more rapid than not,
0: yeah. yeah, okay, right?
1: <laughs>
0: so why did I have to bring that up? Why weren't you thinking about the slugs? I'm not
1: massively obsessed with slugs.
0: <laughs> which tells us that it probably, that as much as you dislike the, the, the sense that the slug dies, it probably is not directly that. That probably connects to something else, something else, something else, which is much more wrapped around you. Right. Because it was really the slugs. And i about
1: the slugs.
0: It would be on your mind all the time. Like, <laughs> there's another slug dying, and another one, another one, right? And you would, right? You see what I'm saying? Yes, yeah. Okay. Make sense? Yeah. Okay. So here's an interesting question: Which ungodly things does the tzaddik hate? The ones that are next to him, or the ones that are far away from him?
1: All of them. All of them.
0: Authors. Like it doesn't matter the proximity. You, you understand? Like if the if if what the, if if the what the tzaddik loves is Hashem and Hashem is absolute then does it really matter where the denial of Hashem is? Mm-hmm. So if on the other side of the world there's something ungodly, how does the tzaddik feel about it? It's
1: like
0: it's now, again, if the tzaddik lacks maturity that could be a problem, right? Because you can imagine the tzaddik could be, end up quite being unpleasant to be around. Right? So the might need some maturity to handle their emotions. Um, this is not exactly an emotional issue, but there was a certain, there was a certain Hasidic Rebbe who um, had a reputation of being like the news service because Hasidic Rebbes have what's um, um, called Ruach HaKodesh, which is like a minor form of prophecy. So people used to go to this tzaddik and ask him questions like, how's my brother in Vienna doing? And like, um, should I do this? But like just asking like all sorts of things and not just like blessings for their particular thing, but want to know, like checking up on relatives they haven't seen. And he would just answer ask whatever you want who would answer the question and um, so someone went to the third Chabad Rebbe the a and asked is this other Tzadik is he legit is he real and the Tzamech replied, replied um, yeah but he's like a child he doesn't know when to keep his mouth shut about this other Tzadik who like every time someone would ask him a question he, like, he would just answer You ever notice this about children? Like, if children know something, do they have any sense that maybe they shouldn't say it? Right. So he's not like, like, he's very, his godly soul is very intense and he's like a child. He lacks the maturity sense of, maybe this person doesn't need to know this piece of information. Um, just a, a, a story about that. I don't remember which which static it was. Um, but the the this this person came to a tzaddik and asked, like, um, he asked, should I should I do something or not do something? And or he or he asked, like, will this business venture succeed? And the tzaddik says, Do you really want to know? He says, Yeah, yeah, I want to know. He says, It won't succeed. It won't succeed. So he didn't do it. And he asked about another venture, do you really want to know? He says yes. And he kept asking, like, do you really want to know is this going to succeed not going to succeed? And everything he did, he asked the tzaddik, and the tzaddik said, You really sure you want to know? And the person say yes, and then the Tzadik would tell him if he would it succeed or not? So he only did the successful things. Um, and then he got sick. I remember like also who he married, like everything he asked, is this gonna be successful or not successful? And he only did the ones that the Tzadik the Tzadik always asked, Do you want to know? Are you really want sure you want to know? In the end, he got sick around 50 years old. He comes to tzaddik. And he says, I'm dying. He says, yeah. He says, what am I supposed to do? He says, well, every person needs to go with a certain amount of pain and suffering and growth in life. And you you avoided all of that and now there's nothing left just to go through the struggle of facing your own mortality. So, Had you not only done the successful stuff, you would have lived to be 75. But you really wanted to know if it would be successful. It's hard to choose consciously to do the unsuccessful thing because you have to go through it, right? it's easier to go through something, thinking you'll succeed, not succeed, and go through the growth process, and then go through it knowing I'm going to fail just for the growth. Oh. So, so, always telling somebody the truth is not always. Well,
1: he was able to make the choice, that he wants to live a good, successful life. For shorter. Than... But he didn't
0: make that choice. He didn't know he was going to die. Earlier. He didn't know going to die earlier. But for some people, that might be It's not. It's not actually. That's the kind of thing where you don't. You don't. You don't we're really bad at judging things in time. So it's like, it's easy to discount the future, like I'm, to trade off the future for the present. This is one of the results of the Tree of Knowledge of Good and Evils. We discount the future for the present. Mm-hmm. But once, you're, once the future is the present, that trade-off doesn't seem so like a good idea anymore. Um, so, yeah. It's, uh, so even though a tzaddik might have divine knowledge and inspiration and know the truth, There's also the maturity of knowing what they say. In a similar way, I don't mean it's the same thing, It's also tzaddik would need maturity to deal with their emotions, right? Tzaddik sees someone sinning. How do you think they feel about that? There was a tzaddik named Buzusha of Annapolis. Buzusha of Annapolis one time saw a Jew come into the Magad of Mizrich. I don't remember the exact details. There was a Rebbe and this Jew asked for advice on how to repent for a small minor sin, but the story was they actually actually murdered somebody. It was like more com- Like they, they were really like, they did this and this and this, but really the real truth was that they murdered somebody and they wanted to know how to repent. And Reb Zusha saw this and he flew into a rage. He couldn't, just he saw this person was being disingenuous. Like you're pretending you did some minor thing, but really you're a murderer and you won't admit it. And, and the Maggit gave him a blessing that he should never see the evil in another Jew.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: And from then on, he never saw the evil. Then there was a tzaddik named Rabbi Levi Yetzel Kapreditshev. And whenever he saw someone doing something wrong, he always would twist it into a good thing. He saw someone fixing their wagon, wearing their towel and tefillin, and he turned his eyes to heaven and he says, Hashem, even at work they want to pray to you. Instead of you're praying while working." or someone, he saw someone eating on Tisha B'av, the major fast day, and he said, asked him, do you know Tisha And The person says, yes. He says, do you know it's a fast day? He says, yes. Do you know it's a serious fast day at Temples of Strait? He says, yes. He says, God, do you see how honest the man is? <laughs> Everything turned into positive. The Baal Shem Tov, when uh, he saw the evil in another Jew, what did, he, what did he think about it? He thought it was evil. Did he, did he love them any less? No. So, you see, those, those three tzaddikim don't have the same level of maturity, right? One sees the evil... And their love of Hashem causes them to have hatred of of the unholiness and then they just, they can't tolerate the other person, right? They need a special blessing to like not see that. The next one is able to tell a good story so the evil doesn't look so evil, right? But if they would see the evil as evil, there's actually a story of this, that one time um, someone came to the Yitzchak and said, I I had an affair, how do I do truth? And he went through, well, did you sin this? Because a lot of different, like, prohibitions that can be involved, adultery, family purity. And the person says, no, 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 I made sure like, to like, find all the halachic lo- loopholes so I didn't actually do anything that's technically halachically wrong. And Rebbe Yitzhak Raditchev couldn't find a way to like, rationalize that kind of cold, calculating sinful behavior. And he, he couldn't handle the person. Because if he really saw the negativity in another person as negative, his hatred for ungodliness would come out. The Baal Shem Tov could see that this is wrong, this is abhorrent, and it doesn't take away from my love of you, right? That requires a deep maturity. So, siddiqim also have maturity issues, and there's the, why some siddiqim are greater and some Siddiquim are lower because of these kinds of issues, right? It's easier for me to be tolerant of things that don't, don't make me feel any sort of hatred or disgust, right? Okay. All right. Oh, here he uses the word contempt. That's a good word. Okay, so the, let's summarize and then, okay, tomorrow we have questions and answers, but let's just summarize. What kind of love makes a person a tzaddik? That they love what? Hashem, as opposed to, they don't love what Hashem can give them. They don't even love having a relationship with him. They love him. Right? which means obviously they want to be close to Him in every sense of the word. That means obviously they hate anything which is... Not, well, so there you have to be technical. In normal relationships, if I love somebody, I don't hate everybody else. But that's because that person is a one part of reality. Hashem is the only reality. So anything that's purporting to be something else is not just not godly, it's ungodly. It's, it's against godliness. And therefore the tzaddik hates the notion of enjoying or finding meaning or purpose or whatever in anything other than Hashem. And therefore anything that has that quality, that allures people to that, the tzaddik has contempt for, finds repulsive, hates whatever you want. And it's got nothing to do with whether that thing is right in front of them or on the other side of the world, right? It's not about its effect on the tzaddik, it's about the reality of such a thing which denies Hashem. And again, a tzaddik therefore would need maturity if they want to interact with people who have an ungodly side to them. This is why actually a lot of tzaddikim avoided people. You know, the Balshemtov when he was younger avoided people. He could not stand adults. Balshemtov hung around children and in the forest as a young child and young man until he joined a group of mystics, a group, a secret group of tzaddikim. And there's a very simple reason. There's something about adults that doesn't exist in children. That adults have a lot more negativity in their character. Children, children aren't very developed. But children, children, you know, they're, they're, there's a, as the, the sages say, they're hevel by bechet, that their breath is sin-free. There's a purity to children. They haven't been uh, corrupted. There's an innocence. But um, all of us, we've got a lot of, you know, scheming and self-absorption and. and Built into our psyches that come over the years. And when the bashenta was very, very young, being around adults, regular people, it was very, very hard. He hated being around people. Not because he hated the people, but he hated the ungodly part of their character, their psyche. Children, he was fine with. And so he would either help the kids to come coming from school, and then he would hang out in the forest by himself. So he found a group of mystics. that's right but it's a question of it's a question of maturity right it takes time to develop that to be able to see the right think about you're about yourself as a person you can you can see something there's something can have a positive element that you love and a negative element that you hate right and sometimes you approach it in a more mature way and you're able to experience both and sometimes you're in an immature way right like don't we get really angry at our loved ones when they hurt us right that's so that i mean the, the it takes maturity to experience the pain without detracting from the feeling of closeness and love, right? When we fall into a state of less maturity, right, that pain takes over, we, 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 we feel like we need to emotionally or physically distance ourselves. It's not a good thing, but it's... So Baal was younger. He avoided adults. He found it very difficult. And when he got older, he didn't have that problem. Okay? What I, what I want to do is to, on the one hand, emphasize the difference between the tzaddik and a regular person while at the same time not turning the tzaddik into a caricature of a human being. A tzaddik is a person in the full sense. It's just a person oriented in a very different way. They're oriented around Hashem rather than themselves. But all the issues people have still exist. Right? Conflicting emotion. Right? Pushing yourself. All those things will still be there. They're oriented very differently. Okay. So the tzaddik loves Hashem? The rasha, the wicked person, do they love Hashem? No. And then there's what's in between that? What's in between not loving Hashem and loving Hashem? Um, loving your relationship with Hashem, right? Make sense? Okay. Next week, what we're going to do is we're going to move on. We're going to start contrasting the complete and incomplete love of Hashem. And therefore, whether or not it only has a subjugating effect on the animal soul or a transformative effect on the animal soul. Okay? Oh, yes, I meant to do that. Let me just do that very quickly. because it's, it's, it's So the word sitra achra literally means the other side. And that we simply use... To differentiate, So there's the side of holiness. These things are, 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 are godly, whatever that means to be godly. And anything which is ungodly, instead of having a side of ungodliness, because if Hashem is the only thing that's true, it doesn't deserve its own name, and so we just call it the other side. The word klipa refers to the idea that everything actually has a godly energy keeping it into existence. So the ungodly things are like, a, the word klipa literally means a shell. There's like a shell covering over the truth. So you can think about this physically, like if you ever took a walnut or any other kind of like real nut, and if nobody told you it was a, a, there was a nut inside and they asked you, do you want to eat this? And you like, no, I don't want to eat this. It's like a weird piece of wood, rock, something. You have to crack it open to get to what's inside. So to the things which are ungodly, whatever is godly and redeemable inside of them that, that keeps them in existence is covered over by the shell. Or you can think of it psychologically. Um, that very often what's really going on inside, we keep covered. So for instance, like anger. If I am angry at somebody, usually that is because I'm angry, if you're angry at somebody.
1: Sense
0: of self. Well, why I'm angry at them. Why don't I? What happened first? So first I was hurt. So underneath the anger is, right? So you go to the person who's really angry. It's like, oh, you must, it must really hurt. It doesn't hurt. I'm just angry. They're, they're, they shouldn't have done that. Right? Like, so there's the shell of anger covering over the pain. Right? Okay. Um, so that's an example, again, if you have a shell, right? Also, you can have other things. Like, for instance, sometimes you're doing something because you say you like it. I have a friend of mine who's a therapist. He says a lot of people don't claim to like things they don't actually like. They claim to enjoy things they don't actually enjoy. Usually, like like, like for instance, um, let's say, movies. A lot of times people claim they like watching movies. And what you discover is that he says, you do therapies, you realize, is really, they have no sense of what they really want in life they don't really have a deep any sense of a deep desire for anything and that doesn't feel very good so then you have a desire to like kind of like engage in pleasant stimulating things to kind of like avoid the emptiness of not having a true deep desire in life like some people do have true deep desire, like, like they really desire something they desire i don't know to cure cancer they desire to to master the piano or something, but there's like a sense in which, like, cause his point—he explained to me—is that when you really desire something, it's something that lives within you, day to day, week to week, month to month. It's something that drives you. And very often, people say that they want is just very circumstantial; it's in the moment. They enjoy certain activities, but there isn't that deep drive, and that means really that um, there's often those which, that those. Quote, desires are just covering over an emptiness um, So there's this notion that, that Something gives off a certain appearance of what it is But that's just a shell And then there's a deeper truth inside The deeper truth inside everything is like, The only thing that's real is Hashem But the ungodly things can be ungodly Because they exist in this way of a shell that covers something over So it's two different words Refer to two different ideas But it's the same reality There's things which are ungodly So that's called the other side And why are they ungodly? Because if the only thing that's real is godliness, then, then how could they be ungodly? Because the way they exist is a shell that covers over the truth. So as they... <laughs> right, so the reality... Right, but, there, but there's two different ideas here. When I'm saying that it's Sitra what am I trying to focus on? The fact that it's not godly. When I call it Klippa... It, right, it's to explain that... I don't mean it's not godly in essence. What I mean, what, what's not godly about it is it denies... The godliness within so that it appears ungodly. Right? So one is talking about the mechanism, one is talking about the result. So it's two different ideas that relate to the same reality. They're often used interchangeably, but sometimes they, the, rule, the difference is important. There's other reasons why it can be called klipa but that's the basic idea. Klipa is something
1: that's not godly that's covering the godliness. How can that be true?
0: true? Because God creates klipa
1: Pain creates
0: anger, but the anger denies the existence of the pain underneath. Emptiness of having a real desire in life, a real drive in life for something, creates all sorts of, quote, interests. And then those interests deny the fact that there's any underlying emptiness. There's a phenomenon that exists. Walnut seeds produce... Walnut shells and walnut shells give no sense that there's a fruit, in, there's a walnut seed inside, right? There's this dynamic of something generating something which denies the thing that generated it. That's Cleaver.